Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I am joined by Liz Tinkham. Liz spent over 30 years as a leader at Accenture, working with high-tech media and telecommunications companies. Upon her retirement, Liz has become an adjunct professor at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington, where she teaches a class on consulting. She also serves on several boards And through the Athena Alliance, she hosts her own podcast, Third Act, in which she explores the next phase in life for those who have retired, left, or changed careers. And today we are speaking with her about transitions. If you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, uh, church activity, research, um, what is your greatest accomplishment as a human? Okay. I think I have two, if that's okay. That's absolutely okay. So the first one would be being a mother. And I think being a mother is a bit of a miracle, even though there's been I guess, billions of people born. Right. But, uh, you know, just being able to create life and then to, um, nurture life and uh, to have the joy of having my three kids who are wonderful um, to me is my biggest accomplishment, right? Um, Whether or not I'm the world's best mother or not was open to debate, but it's a fantastic (laughs) accomplishment that I, I feel like it's a gift, right? That, that I've gotten to have some children. Um, And then if I, you know, if I think about it from a personal perspective, I have a really good ability to see the best in people. Hmm. And that has paid off very well for me. And so I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I also, I can see people's talents pretty clearly. And so that made me an effective leader of people because I could put people uh, where they would be the best. But um, I think it's also helped me to mentor and grow a lot of people um, that I didn't even know I was doing right. But, you know, through my life, I've had a lot of people call me back years later and say, you've made a big difference in my life. 
because you told me this or that. And I, I didn't know it was a something that I was doing differently than anybody else. But my husband actually told me, he's like, you have a better ability to see the best in people than anybody I know. So, huh. yeah. That's lovely. Has that played out both in your career as well as like with your children at, or in your personal life? Uh, certainly in my career, for sure. Uh, you know, as I said, I, I was a, well, I've been a well-respected leader and people like working for me and people have grown underneath me. And I've seen a lot of people do very well. You know, I probably am harder on my children than I'm sure I am, than I am in other people. And, but I can definitely see the best in them, um, and try and nurture that. Right. Whether, I mean, with your kids, I, they don't necessarily take your advice as readily because yeah. they're not working for you, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's something I probably still need to work on more because as a mother, you want, you want them to, to be the best all the time. Right. So, or bring out the best in them. And, um, but then you also balance like, but then you need to be doing this. Right. So it's just, it's been, it's, both. it's a yeah. work in progress, I would say. <laughs> um, I'm really, so when we wanted to talk about this conversation, when I was, as you know, on the podcast, I, I try to have a theme for each episode and because of your podcast and what you're doing with your work now, I was really interested in the, like, just really talking about what does it mean to transition in Uh your, in your career, in your life, um, And so I don't know if I really even now don't know, do I want it to be the language of transition or the language of change? And I don't, I don't even know, but when you think about those, like just those words, mm-hmm. what are the, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking like, what do you think about when we say transition and change or what do you even feel like, what does it feel like for you to think we're going to talk about this? Well, scary because I believe there's a lot of fear involved in transition and change, particularly as you get older. Um, I mean, I like change. I kind of thrive on it. And my career as a consultant was a lot of change all the time. And that's sort of part of being a consultant transition though, away from the identity I had as being a consultant to something else or going from not being a mom to being a mom, from being a you know mom to a mother, mother to, I mean to a worker. I mean all of those sort of transitions and identity changes are hard, and it's something I explore in my podcast right? because I'm very interested in how people's sense of identity changes when they transition. Um, and you know, and I'm always the other thing I think about is sort of advice, right? Like, who do you go to when you're in a period of transition? Who do you reach out to? How do you, how do you think that through? So those would be sort of what I would think about. So can you tell us about the most impactful transitions that you have had in your life? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I'd say two. I'll probably think of more after we hang up. Um, when I went to college, uh, so I, when I graduated from high school, I went to college in Ohio, graduated, I was at high school and college in Ohio. And I, um, you know, I did well in high school and I certainly had enough friends and, you know, it was fairly popular, but I certainly wasn't, it's a little more on the, I wasn't confident in myself or the way I looked. I was really smart, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the it girl or anything like that. Right. Which was fine. Mm-hmm. And I went to college. And, uh, and it was, 
it wasn't quiet, but it wasn't, it just wasn't super outgoing, I would say. Go to college, go to Ohio State, which was like my last choice, but that was what I could afford and my parents could afford. And I immediately meet some people, my roommates, and then I join a sorority. And it's a weird thing because I know people have their own opinions on being Greek or whatever, but I have to tell you, that was the best thing I could have done. It really brought me out. And for whatever reason, maybe being around a whole group of a hundred really supportive women who are also really smart because um, the house I was in, we had the best grades and a lot of really smart gals in there. It, it helped me to develop a really good sense of myself. And uh, I made a great transition to be a lot more outgoing and a lot more sure of myself. And that very much helped me get a good job and get a good into a good career. I would say the second big transition I made is in 2011 when I was 50 years old, which is strange. Uh, my husband and I decided to move and we moved for my job uh, to Seattle from Chicago. And I took a different role at Accenture, which is where I was working. And so I didn't transition jobs. I still, and I still had the same level, but the, the position here and what I did was so different and moving at age 50 away from a very comfortable lifestyle um, was a huge transition. Most of my friends and family were like, you're nuts. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and it has paid off again in spades. Um, the Pacific Northwest is a beautiful place and we've really come to love Seattle. I, I had a very, uh, the new role that I got was extremely good for my career. And I had no idea it would be, I didn't, I knew it would be good but I didn't know it would be as good. And I also met uh, a lot of people, both inside Accenture and outside of Accenture who have really broadened my um, life and point of view and sort of opened up my eyes to a lot of really new and interesting things. And it brought a lot more confidence back. It's not that I wasn't confident, but sort of a new level of it. And I, you know, I've always encouraged people, you know, don't take a chance, take a risk, regardless of how old you are. So those would be the two. I love both of those. One of the other things you said about when you were moving at 50, yeah. you said this moment about how all of your friends were saying, what are you doing? And I think mm -hmm. there's something really significant about that when it comes to how we, that, that influence of our, of the periphery of the people around us who tell us when we're in the midst of change, whether they're supporting us or think we're crazy. And I, I'm really interested in how that manifested itself for you and how you got through it. Because I think there's something important there in terms of how we, how we get through these periods of transition and change. Oh, that's a good point. Well, I'll tell you the first and foremost person was my husband, right? I mean, he was the most important part of that change because I certainly, we didn't, we weren't going to move unless he wanted to. And then I also asked my older son who was in high school at the time, my daughter had, was in college. So she was kind of uh, left off the list, but, um, and he wanted to go as well. Cause I was like, I moved in high school. I thought it was terrible. So I didn't really want to disrupt him, but my husband has a really great sense of adventure and he's also very supportive of my career. So, and, and I have to say, I don't think most spouses would have done this at 50 because we had a nice, comfortable life where we were. 
but he was up for the adventure. That's lovely. So you also mentioned this, and I want to talk about it in this terms that like we have, we as a society talk about change with fear involved, like fear of change. Yes. Um, and I went to this event um, once where there were a bunch of organizational leaders. They were like the HR folks and the CEOs, and it was about organizational culture. And one of the speakers there asked, he had everybody, he said, okay, so I want to ask all of you. Who has re- in the past year, who has changed their hairstyle or color? Who's gone on a vacation to someplace they've never been? Who bought a new car? Who moved? Who switched careers? Uh-huh. Who, like uh, he had all of these questions, had a child started or ended a relationship. And so pretty soon, almost everybody had their hand up and he said, see, we're not afraid of change. That's change. That's a great point. It's a great Human point. beings aren't afraid of change. We say we are, but we actually in some ways crave it. We're looking for change. Uh-huh. I think so. And he said, so what's the role of leaders in saying that the people they lead are afraid of change? Um, is it us who are afraid? Like, and it was just an interesting conversation about, are we afraid of change or are we afraid of failing in the change or what is that fear? And, and so I'm just interested in you talking about that a little bit. Okay. So I'm not afraid of change at all. And <laughs> I never have been, I don't think, and you have to know that, I don't know if you know much about management consulting, but it's change every single day and we help our clients through change. So if you don't like change, you don't take the job because one day you're, you know, you're assigned to a particular client. Maybe you're in town in the city you live in and you drive there and you do a project. And then three weeks later, you might get sent out of town. I mean, it's a very unpredictable lifestyle. Your clients can call you at five o'clock at night and cancel a project or say, you know, I need you here over the weekend or you one night I was on a call all night. And and then the next day I'm like, I came downstairs and said to my husband, I got to go to India for three weeks. Right. And so you just get very used to it and you learn to build your lifestyle around it. And it's not for everybody. Um, You know, if you don't, if you want to, if you want to know where you're going to be every single day and that, or you want to be able to always know you can take a six o'clock soul cycle class. It's not the place for you. But if you're, if you get um, exhilarated with the constant change, like I do, it, uh, it's a great uh, career. So I've never been afraid of change. And I think it's really healthy because, because life is changing, right? Even one thing I see with not working at Accenture anymore is all of the things that are changing that I would have been a part of if I was working. And sometimes I feel like, Oh, I'm missing this. Like I'm not part of the business change that's going on with COVID, even though I'm still doing things through COVID and I'm working at the university of Washington, but there, it just excites me to think about what my old colleagues are doing, right? Like all the challenges they must be facing and life just keeps changing. So to me, it's like, you need to embrace it and figure out, you know, coping mechanisms to deal with it. But again, I mean, people have, I think people just have different degrees of what they can tolerate. One thing I always have said to people, and I don't know if I got this advice early on, which is what's the worst case scenario. Oh, I know after I had cancer when I was um, 38, I had breast cancer and it was a pretty bad case. I lived through it thankfully. And it's, so it's been 21 years, but after you go through that, where the worst case scenario is death, um, you look at everything much differently, right? So, and, and and so everything I do, I'm like, well, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? And if you play that out, you almost always able to see 
that you can deal with every single thing that is worst case. Because in with work, death was never the worst case scenario. So once you have that as sort of something you've already faced, to me, it's like, well, what's the worst case scenario? We get to Seattle, it doesn't work out. Well, we just move back. You take a position you don't like, we change, right? You, you know, there's, you, you're going to be able to figure out a way to work through it. And I've preached that to my kids. I used to tell people at work and help them kind of work through that. And that tends to take the fear out of change. Oh, I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's way more profound than, <laughs> um, than you may even be giving it credit for, right? <laughs> but I, uh, and I've, I, so my past, it, one of my past lives, uh-huh. I was a divorce lawyer. Oh, and, and that one of the things, yeah, it was actually, but one of the things I saw is that, is that like once a significant change happened when people were going through divorce or, and I'd see them at the end of divorce, um, it, it felt like, and, and that is also a cliche, but it felt like it really did open the door for them to think about their lives differently. That now that yeah. that had happened, like the, the thing that they thought was the worst, they could now go like, all right, I'm going to go try this now. Like it seemed like more possibility related depending on the person, but I feel like there's, there could be when you face that worst case thing Mm -hmm. and you get through it, then possibilities seem so much more. I do. I also think it helps you to rash. It it breaks everything down into some small step that you can almost always work through. I'm really, I talk about how I'm interested in how we bring our whole selves to work, that we don't have to be a separate person at work and at home, right? Just be a person. What, how did that, what does that mean to you? And how is, what was that like for you at, in your career? Were you able to be Liz mom and Liz work? Did you want to be? Uh, so I have three kids, um, who are eight years apart and, I would say different from the first one to the third one as society progressed to be more accepting of working moms Mm. and as did Accenture. So when I had Katie, uh, well, people were thrilled. I mean, people were so excited that I was going to be a mom and all of that. Um, and I, you know, when I came back to work though, um, I worked for somebody who was also a mom. So I was lucky. And she understood the uh, sort of guilt thing yeah. that goes on when you first come back to work. And she was funny because like at the nine month mark, I remember working and I was feeling all bad about everything. And, you know, you never feel good. You feel terrible <laughs> about your kid. You feel terrible about work. And she just looked at me and she's like, get over yourself. Like you're feeling sorry for yourself. You're doing fine. Your kid's fine. Your job is fine. You got to, you know, you're kicking yourself. And she gave me a little, I always say, sometimes you need a, a swift kick in the, the patoot uh, to get yourself, uh, you know, out of your own way. And she did that. And then I was like, yeah, you're right. This is probably fine. And by the time I had Will, um, uh, you know, then I had the cancer at the same time. Um, things had changed, but at what, you know, as I got older and more senior and as my kids um, aged, you know, aged and grew up, they definitely, sometimes they came along with me, uh, to, to, uh, different trips. Um, they sometimes came into work, you know, if we needed it, uh, they certainly knew what was going on. I was very supportive of working parents. At least I hope people would reflect that way. 
And then my last position, which is the one I came out to do in Seattle, uh, you know, I was really conscientious about working families. And when we had events and things, it was, they were always family events. We never, we tried not to do any just sort of have, you know, work after hours, you know, we had occasional dinners, but any client events or anything were all family events just because you just need to. So, yeah, I think things have gotten so much better than they were in 1991 when Katie was born so much better. (laughs) That's, that's absolutely, I would imagine that that's absolutely true. And I think it's important for us. I wonder what advice you would give to listeners. I do know that I have uh, a lot of listeners who are considering uh, parenthood and yeah. like, what advice would you give to them as they are considering that major <laughs> life change? Uh, it can, if, if they want to stay working, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It, you can make it work. First of all, the first thing I'd say is children bounce. So, um, you know, you can, I'm not saying you should do this, but you know, your kids fall off the bed and you pick them up and they're crying and they bounce. So I don't, I mean, parents are going to worry about their kids, but in general, um, your kids are fine. I mean, like, I think a lot of parents obsess about a lot of things that they don't need to obsess about. And if you think back on the way you're, you, they were raised, or maybe their mother was grandparents were raised. I mean, some of the stuff that we obsess over now, like my mother and grandmother never would have even thought about it. And I turned out fine. Right. And so I think number one, kids bounce. And number two, I do believe that most um, issues that you might have are created by you, not by your company. And I think, and I know this to be true because I've just seen it. Um, And I think you need to talk about what you, you have to draw clear lines and boundaries yourself. And you need to communicate with your employer um, in terms of what you can do and can't do and what you want. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we are speaking with Liz Tinkham. Let's jump back in. the other things that I'm interested in hearing from you about is this work that you do with the Athena Alliance. It is all about women. Yeah. Yeah. And so what from that work, what have you seen in terms of how you're coaching or you're working with women uh, executives in that space? How are they approaching change? What is that? How does that manifest itself for you in that, in that work with women in particular? So the Athena Alliance is a, um, company that it, it helps senior women get um, reach their potential to get board positions or to rise up the rank primarily into CXO spots. So our population is folks who are ladies who are say 35 and up and uh, moving up the career. It started with people probably a little bit older because they were looking at board positions, but we've expanded. 
what I do for them is run this third act podcast where I'm looking at women who have reached what we call vocational freedom, meaning they have the time, treasure, and talent to do whatever they want. And I had this hypothesis that that group of women of which I'm in it, um, that's like the first generation of women who actually have their own money. They've made enough of their own money to be able to retire comfortably. And they're not just going to go play golf. So when I retired a couple of years ago, my husband curated a set of retirement books and they all ended up being about don't divorce your wife and uh, go play golf and have fun. And I'm like, none of them were written for women and none of them reflected this sort of high achiever set of women and who are now retiring. And so in interviewing these folks who have all are either in the transition or, or um, have been through it, what I found interesting is that most of them uh, have been pretty purposeful about it, right? And they have found something during their working career or from when they were in college that they wanted to continue, they wanted to do, like they either wanted to go back to, like a lot of them had been told to be educators, ended up doing something else and then went back to education. Or they saw a need in their business world that they're now solving in their third act, so to speak. And so they've had good transitions because they had something to go to. Now, me, on the other hand, (laughs) had not figured any of that stuff out, which is, so the third act podcast is somewhat self-serving because I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, what should my third act be, right? And it's been, but it's been really fun sort of exploring how these folks have made those transitions. And as, and I talk a lot about identity and how their identity has changed and how they've worked through it. And, you know, they've given a lot of really interesting sort of life lessons around how to think that stuff through. And, um, it's, it's just been, it's been really interesting to me to learn their stories. Um, I love that you talk about identity. I had this, uh, in some of my leadership training that I did at Antioch actually was about one of the folks that was our, one woman who was our professor also worked at the center for creative leadership Mm -hmm. and did, had us all go through this system where we looked at, um, what are our, like, what are all the identities that we carry with us all the time? And she had us like really go through and say, these are my given identities. I didn't choose them, but it's a part of who I am. Um, whether it's like, I'm a daughter or Uh I'm an American or right. Like, yeah, I'm a um, mother. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and, but chosen, like, so I could also choose to be uh, a mother, or I could choose to be an American. I could choose not to anymore. Right. Like, mm-hmm. but, and then there were core identities. Like what are the things really truly at your core that you, that you're working through trying to like, that you value so much that you have to figure them out. And it was, it, it's really interesting for me because as a, as a lawyer, I struggled a lot with my ability to be like, I really love to be an advocate, but I really hated to be an adversary. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I also struggled as a, in a leadership role to think of myself as a nurturer, but I know that that's a big piece of who I am. So I had to reframe how I owned that. And I just wonder if during any of your conversations about identity, like we have identities as in our work, but have you had conversations with people that lead you to think of them, their core or what is your core identity when you think about that? 
Well, that's really a great question. Um, probably it would just, I'd have to think through my guess, but a couple of them have been, they've, that's come through. Um, most have been, uh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And they're, maybe they're still trying to figure out what their next identity is. But a couple of people, their, their core identity has come through and you can see it because they talk about who they were in college, who they were at work and what they're doing mm. now. And it's all kind of the same, right? And um, somebody who's very artistic, um, I, she comes to mind and she always loved art. Her art f factored in somewhat at work, not a ton in her big career, but now she's back doing art. But just that identity of being an artist and the part of that that's um, she had taken from, I think her aunt or her grandmother and how that all makes her feel. And she's doing a fine art and sort of mass market art in her third act, which is really cool, right? And I just, I'm, I haven't, I'm ta I talked to a football coach and you'd never think that um, somebody who had that much success as a football coach would, he was one of the most authentic guests I've ever had and just a family man and, you know, really concerned about kids and mm -hmm. it comes through. He just, the whole interview, it just comes through. It's really interesting in spite of the trappings of power, wealth, fame, which are all there, that his authenticity around him, himself, his family, and the kids that he nurtured as football players just, just sang out in this interview. So I think that's wonderful. I want to, yeah. I'm really interested in that. I, and I, I have to, I, I let you know that what I am paying attention to with you is like right at the beginning of our conversation, when you talked about um, who you are, what you're proud of as a person is seeing the best in people. Uh -huh. And then it leads to this really great conversations that you're having with the people on your podcast where uh -huh. you're able to raise out the best in them as they go. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> like it's very, the, the, there's something along those lines. And I, with regard to the third act though, I also, it, so I, many of the people that you're talking to are, you're talking to them as they're, you know, at that potential of retirement stage. And I have a dear friend of mine who we used to have these jokes with him because every year when we would end up talking about what's next for him, he would say for probably five years, I'm going to retire. No, really uh -huh. this time I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire. And he, Every year he didn't retire and he didn't retire. Mm -hmm. And one, we ended up having this lovely, really vulnerable conversation where we were talking really about like, what is it we really fear in our lives? And during the conversation, he like just stopped and he said, I am so afraid of being irrelevant. Oh, that is so true. That is and it, so it was true. so, and I wonder, like, I think. I think that is really clear when you're retiring. And I would love for you to talk about what that felt like for you as you were making the oh decision for retirement. Oh, and I'm still afraid of being irrelevant. So that's a great question. It's very hard to go from a big position of power and where you have a lot of people working for you and you're doing really well financially. You, you work for a name brand company you know, I just keep thinking about my business card, right? 
hand it out. What's my business card say now? And it prevented me from retiring for many years as it does a lot of people. And I, but I, I came to a point where it's like, look, I've accomplished everything I wanted to. I'm leaving on a high. It's time. I had one, my youngest one was still in high school. I thought at least have one year with one kid. Right. So anyway, um, and it is really hard and you have to, and everybody I know who I've interviewed has said the same thing that when you, when you're at that position and then you lose that, you do come, you do your, your email, you never, you don't get as much email. You just, nobody calls you. It's all true. You lose a lot of your, your people, friends, you have all these friends at work, um, especially as a woman, all the guys. And I knew this was going to happen. I, I said to them, look, I talk to you guys once a week. As soon as I retire, you're never going to call me again. Like, of course, we're going to call you. Never hear from them. So now I can call them and they'll pick up the phone. But I mean, it's sort of a guy thing as well. But it's really hard. That's why it's that's why I wanted to do this to say you do need to plan for being retired, male or female, regardless of what job you have, uh, because you need to find something that is going to make you is going to fill up your self-esteem and make you feel good about the step steps that you've made or the, the choices you're making. It's hard. There's lots of books written on it. So it seems really hard. And it, I, it makes me think that in some ways we keep going back in this conversation I, and I haven't thought about it enough because I, I keep thinking about purpose and meaning, yep. but it does also come back to confidence too. Like yeah. how do you feel good about yourself when our whole society bases ourselves on what we do? Yeah. Yeah. Society scoreboard. One of my guests talks about that and you're right. And, um, purpose and meaning are a a big part of what I think about with the third act and the, you know, and here's the sort of the irony of the situation when you have time, talent, and treasure, which if you're fortunate enough to get that, like I am, everyone says you, well, now you can do whatever you want. You can fulfill your purpose and mission. And I think to myself, the only life that I've known has been, I got good grades in high school so that I could go to college. And then I worked my butt off during college so I could get a good job. Then I got a good job and I just worked my even worked harder so that I could build up enough wealth and have a great career so that I could take care of my family and, um, and you know, and whatever else I wanted. So I've had this set you know, it's like, I've been getting A's all along. Right. So I've had scores in front of me in that period of time. I never thought about what else was I going to do because I was always working. I mean, started working when I was 12 years old, babysitting or whatever. And I, when you take all that away and then you have this sort of happy, now you can do whatever you want. The question is, what do I want to do? And, oh my gosh, Annalisa, I cannot tell you how much time I've been spending like trying to figure out like, what is my purpose and meaning in life? And some people know, like my guests on third act, a lot of them know, but I think most people don't. And I don't think that's a problem, but it is, you know, I feel like I'm in this really fortunate situation and I need to sort of, sort of step back and say, there's more of me to give what's the right way to do it. And, you know, you know, I need to sort of get myself on that path. So I love that because it makes me think when I graduated from law school, you know, I'm a first gen college student. I Uh didn't know 
and I joke a little bit about the going to going to law school was about because all the TV shows I saw, if you were, if you were successful, you were a doctor or a lawyer and I was afraid of science. And so I went to law school, Uh which is not the reason to make those choices. Like that's not right. And I remember being a 26 year old lawyer and going and being terrified because then I was like, wait, all I'd ever planned for was that I was going to be a lawyer and now I am one. And I have the rest of my life in front of me and it doesn't, I don't understand this path or what to do with it. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and then you we changed, paid. but you, you changed, right? I changed. Yeah, yeah. I did. Good for but you. It was super scary. And that change uh-huh. was all about, um, everybody told me I was crazy. Cause I come from the first gen world. So everybody was like, you're our hope. You're the person like, you didn't just go to college. You went to law school. Right. Why did you give it all away? Right. Right. What are you doing? And, but you got to make yourself happy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and it came for me with motherhood with that. Uh-huh. With that yeah. moment of being a mom and thinking, wow, you know, like you look down at that little kid and all you want for them is like, all I want is for you to be happy. Mm-hmm. Like, I really legitimately don't care what your happiness looks like I, as long I, as you have it. Exactly. I feel the exact same way. And then I remember thinking, oh, I probably should model that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what happiness looks like for me. I better figure this out. <laughs> yep. You know, it's interesting because my brother and I both, uh, I have one brother and he has a great job that he loves. And I had a great, I have a, I had a great job. I love, and our dad did not like his job. And we've talked about that. It's like maybe that modeling of my dad, not really always being that happy with his work told us, boy, you should, for the 92,000 hours you're going to spend at work, you better make sure it's something you like doing. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And, and even so then the next, the next chapter, that transition of finding the, the space that makes you feel fulfilled, maybe it isn't as much about per- purpose and meaning, and maybe it's just about happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love working. I really do. Yeah. I always have. Yeah. So I love my job. I, I, I thought it was a terrific job. So I don't feel like, uh, you know, the, the hours I worked, I feel were meaningful and, and fulfilling. And so um, I feel really lucky that I was able to find a career that was, that was enjoyable. Oh, I feel really lucky. I got to talk to you um, about you. that career and about this work. If you what as you know, and I love that you've talked about this, I would love to hear a story. Um, I am s- seriously passionate about the role that mentors play in our lives. Uh-huh. Um, whether they are known men- mentors or not, right? Like in some mm-hmm. ways, what you just said about your dad was yeah. him being a mentor to you in what you didn't want, did mm-hmm. not want to have happen in your life. Um, so are there, is there a story about a mentor that you would like to talk about or honor here that you want to say this person was a mentor that made it? Absolutely. Yeah. So my mentor at work was Jill Smart. She was uh, my, one of my first bosses when I first started working at, at uh, Accenture. <sighs> she was badass, I have to say. She would have fit the dictionary description of it. And I mean that in the most wonderful, loving way, but she was uh, hard charging, tough, uh, but very smart, um, very fun to be around and pushed me hard. And I, I like being pushed hard. And she went on to become the head of HR for Accenture over a long and um, storied career. She was the CHRO and she was always my mentor, right? So she and I diverged paths after I worked for her, but we were always in contact. 
And it's funny, I had a child before her, but then when she had her daughter, Stephanie, I remember her calling me with like, Liz, you have to tell me exactly how to do it. And I need all your advice. And I thought, well, this is a role change, right? But um, she would be the one every time I'd get, my career would get stuck. I would call her and I would say, oh, this is going on and this is going on and blah, blah, blah. She's like, what are you afraid of? And she's like, what, you know, she would kind of go into what's the worst case scenario and just a terrific uh, push. She would push me. And I like people who push me. Um, and to this day, if I ever have anything I want to talk to her about um, or thinking about, et cetera, I can still call her and say, hey, I'm in the middle of this thought or that thought. Or I'm thinking about doing this or that. And she's just one of these people who gets right to the point, right, right to that, like, you know, just that point of where you're so uncomfortable and she'll just push you right through it. And I love people like that. And so she's always been my, my best mentor. She sounds amazing. She is. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. All right. So now at this last moment of our conversation, I just wonder, like, as you're spending your time, um, doing this, figuring out your third act yes, (laughs) and, and spending what hopefully is that like, is the, is not as many of those 92,000 hours right now, how, when you're, when you're finished with these, these moments of work that you're doing, whether it's on a board or at the university of Washington or doing your podcast, how do you know that those hours are spent well? What, what, what makes oh, you feel like they're spent well? Oh my gosh. Cause I'm so happy. I mean, I love doing all those things. They're all, the thing I love doing the most is learning new things and, and talking to people. So the podcast for sure fulfills that. I always learn something so neat and new about people and people are amazing. Right. When, and you know, cause I, I was listening to your podcast and so many people have interesting stories and um, lessons to tell the teaching is a gift, totally a gift. I learn way from my, more from my students than they learn from me because they all come from different backgrounds and they have unique opinions and they just amaze me. Like they amaze me with what they come up with. And then the boards, um, the technology involved is a little more challenging uh, than maybe what I've been used to. So that's always fun to sort of get your head around. And I'm working with a lot of people that I didn't have a chance to work with that Accenture different, right? So I learn a lot from those as well. So all of them are very happy time. I love my time spent on all three. Awesome. No stress either. <laughs> Which is even better. Boy, right. Cause like my worst case at, at foster is grading. Like I have to grade today. Like, well, I can do that. Right. But you know, nothing's going to break or I'm not going to lose money or anything like I did at Accenture. Right? <laughs> so anyway, it's a lot better. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for spending your time with me on this. Oh gosh, Annalise, thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It has been wonderful. I can't wait to get to like I'm gonna pay so much more attention to your um to your podcast and your work and what you're going to be doing next because I think I could learn a lot. Well, thank you. You too. Awesome. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. hope you enjoyed our conversation with Liz as much as I did. You can learn more about her by connecting with her on LinkedIn and particularly by listening to her fabulous podcast, Third Act with Liz Tinkham, 
available on Apple Podcasts. Next week, I'll be joined by Omid Fatui, a research psychologist who has dedicated his life to exploring and researching the processes and scientific mechanisms underlying human motivation and performance. And we'll be talking about belonging. I hope you'll join us. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety-two thousand hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.